Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Pleased to have back Phyllis Schlafly, an American constitutional lawyer. Um, some would call her a conservative uh, activist, uh, I would say probably closer, just to the middle of the bell, car, bell curve bulge of common sense. She's an author and a speaker. She's written extensively on military matters, and she led the campaign, a successful campaign against the ratification of the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. And um, she's recently written a book called Who Killed the American Family? Thank you so much, Mrs. Schlafly, for taking the time today. So happy to join you. So... For those of us like myself who kind of grew up in the divorce wreckage of the 70s and 80s and who have seen an endless parade of alternative family structures being proposed in society, what does it mean to say there is the American family and uh, who would you put standing by the graveside? Well, the building of the great middle class uh, with a father provider and mother taking care of the children uh, was the foundation of our society. Uh, that's when we became number one in economics as well as in military superiority. And uh, it, it was a way for people to live happily. And uh, it, it was just a great uh, building of our country. And that, that middle-class family has pretty well disappeared now. You can look at the statistics on that, but nobody seems to talk about how did that happen. And I don't think it was any accident. I think there were certain groups of people who really didn't like the average American family for many reasons, and um, they set out to destroy it, and they've just about done it. And you point out in the book, you say that, uh, this is a quote from the book, the Great Depression of the 1930s, when millions of men were unemployed, didn't kill the American family. World War II, when we sent 16 million men to fight on faraway battlefields requiring long absences from home, didn't kill it. So when you think of an institution that did survive, um, I mean, as you talk about it, having developed in the early Middle Ages, survived things like uh, the Black Death, uh, the Crusades, uh, the, the depopulation of the countryside under the enclosure movement in the 17th century. It survived uh, industrialization, the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War. This is an institution that seems to be pretty formidable, and to undo it seems would seem like an, uh, taking out an impregnable fortress. So what do you think are the major factors that have managed to reduce it? Well, that's what you really have to read the book to uh, find out who killed the American family. But there were a number of groups that didn't like the family for their own reasons. For example, the feminists, uh, they tell their friends that they want to kill the patriarchy. Uh, they're very anti-men. They were certainly behind the change in the divorce laws, which were just a tremendous uh, change in our society that uh, came about uh, starting in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, I grew up during the Great Depression, and even the black family held together during the Depression. It was after that. So, so the feminists were a major factor. Uh, another factor is, for, frankly, free trade. Uh, they started sending the good American jobs overseas. And uh, no longer could uh, the husband get a good $50,000 a year job to support his family. And so when he couldn't, that meant his wife had to go into the workforce and uh, maybe work at Starbucks or some minimum wage job. And um, that another, was another attack on the family. And then the whole uh, the media, the, 
the people who think they're experts uh, were always talking down the family, didn't need the family anymore. And uh, certainly the family was not reinforced in school, although we we uh, see the uh, recent statistics. You know, we've spent all this money to try to improve uh, public schools and to eliminate what they call the gap between the high-achieving and the low-achieving students. And they used to think the reason for the gap was poverty. But late information shows it's the difference between those who grow up in a family with a mother and father and those who don't. Well, that is uh, something I've been reinforcing in this show, the degree to which, uh, A, the welfare state is largely the single mother state, and uh, B, that the children who come out of single mother households uh, are at significant and, and highly elevated risk of a wide variety of uh, social dysfunctions, which you really, well, society has a huge deal of trouble trying to fix after the fact. You know, prevention is worth many, many times that of cure. And the prevention, of course, for single motherhood was the requirement for marital commitment before the production of children. And that link really seems to have unraveled in in an incredibly rapid period of time. You could really date this from the mid-60s, I would say. Uh, Yes. And something you said uh, reminds me of another one of these powerful forces against the family are incentives. And financial incentives are very powerful, both to rich and to poor. And uh, the incentives now are to the woman who has babies, but not a husband. And the more babies she has, the more goodies from the taxpayer's money she gets. And uh, so uh, the, those incentives are powerful. And, and uh, it's, it's extremely unfortunate that that was caused by, uh, initially by Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. And uh, the war on poverty uh, really didn't uh, advantage uh, married couples, just just women having babies, whether or not a husband happened to be around. And, of course, when you took away the husband's job and duty as a provider, uh, he didn't see any need to stay around. So he's sashaying on down the block to play with the boys. Right. Would it be fair to say that the creation of the single mother cohort is a specifically maybe not consciously, but I think specifically Democrat strategy to create uh, a group of dependent voters whose um, support can be ensured through uh, their dependence on the state? Oh, well, I think that's extremely true and easily provable. Uh, The Democrats want more people on welfare, want more people living on handouts from the government, because they know that the, uh, the Democrats have promised to continue and increase uh, government handouts, whereas the Republicans uh, seem to be always talking about cutting spending. But the big spending is for welfare. And uh, a lot of people think the only people who get welfare are are people who are out of work and completely down on their luck. But actually, the big majority of them are people who are working some kind of um, minor low-paid job, and uh, they were able to cash in on everything from uh, food stamps to uh, ec- extra extra money for children and various kinds, and and uh, it's it's a real racket. 
Well, I think that uh, it, it, the gap that you point out in the book that single moms tend to vote Democrat, whereas married moms tend to vote Republican can be kind of explained through economics as well in that the married moms, when taxes go up to pay for the unmarried moms, it comes out of their husband's income, particularly if they're stay-at-home moms. And so it's a wealth transfer from the husbands of uh, married moms uh, to the single moms. And that's, I think, why we see this uh, married women voting to the right and unmarried women voting to the left. Yes, they, they, there are powerful incentives and disincentives. And I do discuss those in, in my book. You know, I think it's kind of amazing. There isn't any other book like my book, Who Killed the American Family. You, you find a, a lot of people complaining about the decline in the family numbers, uh, but uh, nobody has undertaken to explain how we got there. And I think people are very much motivated by money inducements and uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, norms uh, shown on the television, and all these things uh, provide uh, inducements against the family. And, of course, the feminist ideology uh, teaches women that uh, men are the enemy, and it teaches them that they are victims of the patriarchy. Patriarchy has become a favorite word they talk about, and uh, they don't want the husband and, and, the, uh, uh, and, and the men to have any say-so, uh, they want the women to, to rule everything. You said something, not in this book, but something I read a few years ago, Ms. Schlafly, that really, really stuck with me, where you talked about the sheer fun of raising children. And you have, I think, six uh, children, and you were voted Mother of the Year, and so I obviously am in awe of your parenting expertise. But there has been such a negative connotation associated with, you know, the women who stay home and raise children and so on. Could you t tell a little bit about your perspective from somebody who, you know, did stay home with your kids and obviously have a, a successful intellectual uh, career as well? Uh, what are people missing when they look at staying home with kids and just seeing this, this drudgery? Well, they're missing a lot of the fun and, and satisfaction of life. Uh, now, uh, you know, stay-at-home mom uh, isn't exactly the way it used to be because uh, the private industry has given us these wonderful labor-saving devices. When I got married, the thing I wanted more than anything in the world was a dryer so I didn't have to hang up my diapers, my diapers on a line outside in the yard. And, and now, of course, we have washers and dryers and dishwashers and all kinds of labor-saving devices that have made uh, housework and the care of children. Or oh, they even have paper diapers now. I, I think of all the thousands of diapers that I washed out in the toilet for my six children. And uh, they've made it really so much easier. And, of course, people don't have as many children. When I got married, most everybody in my town had six children. But uh, you don't find that so much anymore. Uh, so... There's all kinds of other time that you can uh, do exciting things and uh, enjoy life and pursue your interests. Uh, I got active as a volunteer in politics, and uh, that wasn't any full-time job. I wasn't reporting to any boss, uh, but I was able to go out uh, occasionally, make a speech, and then come home and sleep in my own bed. And uh, so uh, I was able to combine children and a very fulfilling uh, intellectual career at the same time. 
I think also for women who want to stay home, because there are so many women working outside the, the home, I think it's tough to find a neighborhood where you get that, you know, sharing stories over the backyard fence uh, stuff that goes on where you can get a real community because a lot of these, they, I think they're called bedroom communities where, uh, because there are so many people who are both working outside the home with their kids in daycare, anyone who does stay home doesn't kind of get that same uh, benefit of community that, that used to be uh, in, in the past. Well, I, I think that's perfectly true and people do miss that and uh, it's unfortunate. But uh, I... Uh, I, I don't regret my life in any way. I, uh, and, and also, I let my husband think he was the boss and make all the important decisions. You know, I tell these women, oh, yes, he made all the important decisions. For example, he decided that we could only have potatoes that were baked. He didn't believe in mashed potatoes and other kinds, and they had to be well, thoroughly baked. And you know, these young women just look at me so funny. Like, how could you put up with that? But, uh, you know, there, there are lots more important things in life than how long you bake your, bake your potato. <laughs> yeah, like the happiness of your marriage would be uh, sort of, I think we have bigger moral battles to win in the world than how, how much we boil our carbs. Now, when we talk about financial incentives, uh, something that I, because I've been happily married for many years, was something that's sort of off my radar until a year or two ago where I was looking at the degree to which men are not getting married uh, anymore and and you have a i think one of the best sections in a great book is is the section on incentives for divorce um two-thirds of course as you point out and in some places it's even higher of the divorces are initiated uh, by women and they don't cite abuse or infidelity as the cause which was i think what was required before up until the 1960s here in canada you needed an act of parliament to get uh, divorced. And now they basically just say, well, I'm dissatisfied. And uh, I think as you point out in the book, they say the most powerful reason why wives initiate divorce is because I will win. And uh, this, of course, made men terrified of uh, being dragged like a cat through a holly bush backwards in the court system. What has changed since the 60s that has made such an unequal combat scenario uh, in the family courts in America? Oh, well, I do blame the family courts. I think they are one of the biggest uh, uh, foes of, of happy marriage. And uh, they, they not only, the, the women file suit uh, in most of the big majority of divorces, not only because they know they'll win, but because they know they can take with them the children, the home, and the money. So those are tremendous incentives. And uh, it's, it's, uh, that's the fault of the family court. Now, the family courts are supposed to be the lowest in the judicial hierarchy, but actually they're the most powerful. They, they are absolutely controlling the lives and the money and the residences of, uh, what, 50 million Americans. And uh, who, who gave the courts all this power? Uh, they are able to tell the divorce couple how they spend their money, who gets the money, uh, and uh, where uh, where the children, you know, there's some of them who are telling the children what church to go to and what school to go to. And uh, the, the as I explain in the book, one of the big problems is this old English saying, the best interest of the child. And when that was written into British common law by the famous uh, British lawyer who did that, um, if what it meant was the parents 
were, were best situated and qualified to decide what was in the best interest of the child. But now, since the 1970s, the judges and family courts have taken that over. So now the judges decide what's in the best interest of the child. And there are all kinds of big and small decisions that have to be made in every family. Is your child going to play baseball or soccer? How do you decide what is in the best interest of the child? You leave that up to the, the, uh, just the inclination of the judge, whatever he likes. And, and that, this is a removal of parental authority, uh, which has certainly been part of the destruction of the family. Well, and there is no, as far as I can see, no objective standard, as you point out, by which you can determine the best interest of the child other than, which would be interesting to see in family court law, if, uh, if the family courts really did want to act in the best interest of the child, wouldn't it be fair to say that except in cases of abuse or, or perhaps infidelity, that they would say to the parents, no, you can't have a divorce, go to family counseling, go do whatever you need, but go and work this out because what's in the best interest of the child is for you as a husband and wife to stay together. And we know now there's some recent figures that showed that even, even after divorce, where you've got the parents have split up, uh, the child is better off if he kept, keeps a relationship with both the mother and the father. And the children in school do better when they have the advantage of both a mother and a father. And uh, there's nothing that's uh, gender neutral about what a child needs. The child needs what both uh, the what the mother gives and 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 what the father gives and it's very important and uh, uh, so uh, there's just so many forces working against the family it's it's so unfortunate and you can look at the statistics and see how the number of people who are married has declined severely. Yeah, and. Um... You mentioned earlier, and I, I sort of read this part of the book with great interest, I'm sort of a, I guess you could say, a rabid free marketer. Um, unfettered capitalism is, to me, historically unarguable as the best way to um, create wealth and, and opportunity within a society. But you did talk in the book about trade policies that drove jobs overseas. And a statistic that I read uh, that it still blows my mind every time I hear it is that, uh, you know, since the 1990s, 50,000 American manufacturing jobs have vanished every single month, not every year, every single month. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the in inequalities in the trade deals that helped to drive these jobs overseas. Well, I think the expression free trade, which sounds uh, good to conservatives, has been a great attacker of the, of the family. The first place, it's, it's a lie. Uh, we allow tremendous cheating by the Chinese and other countries. And if they abided by the rules, that would be one thing. But they don't. We stick by the rules because we, we believe in rules, but the Chinese don't. And so they're cleaning our clock every day of the, of the week. And, and so that's unfortunate. And then they lied to us about these uh, trade agreements. For example, when the previous one went through with South Korea, Obama promised uh, that that was going to create 40,000 new jobs. Well, it did, but they were in South Korea. They weren't in the U.S. And, and so 
I'm tremendously offended with the way uh, they lie to us about the whole subject of free trade. And uh, I think uh, if you, if you, and we, we don't have any world system that can really enforce these rules. And so we just live with it. And it, it's, uh, well, we, uh, it's no fun playing with somebody who doesn't play by the same rules you play, you do. Yeah. And of course, um, when it comes to these kinds of jobs, America has the highest corporate tax rate uh, in the world. Uh, and so, of course, it's really tough to compete with regions that have low, uh, little to no corporate tax. It has uh, environmental regulations, which are... I'm sorry, go ahead. That's the reason uh, why uh, the Democrats are always pushing uh, heavy immigration. The big businesses want to bring in uh, cheap labor. Uh, that's what they want, because most of the people coming in are poorly educated. They don't even have a 10th grade education, and they will work for much less than Americans are willing to work for. So it's it's an attack on the family every way, both uh, uh, morally and financially. And the last topic I wanted to mention was, uh, and you, you touch on this in the book as well, that um, and I've made this case that uh, when when you allow... When you have a high regulatory environment combined with uh, uh, open immigration policies, it harms those who are struggling the most to rise from the lower economic uh, areas. And in particular, uh, with, with black families, because so, you point out, and as Tom Sowell has pointed out, uh, black families survived slavery, they survived Jim Crow and the Great Depression and war, and it wasn't really until the 1960s that you began to see the black family really begin to uh, disintegrate. And they have, uh, you know, where the black family has gone in terms of disintegration, uh, uh, other ethnic groups seem to be sort of in hot pursuit off that cliff. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about uh, where you've seen any uh, ethnic differences in how the family has been undermined since the 60s. Well, I think it's been the, the powerful economic force of taking the good jobs away uh, of, of the men, of the husbands, and, and taking away their ability to support a family. And, and then you have the groups that really want, want to get rid of the family. And I include Obama in that. You know, he made a speech up in Grand Rapids uh, a couple of months ago in which he said, uh, we do not think women should have the choice to stay home and take care of their own children. They should all be in the workforce because that will improve our national product, gross national product and be better for our country. And, uh, but it was very interesting that he used the word choice. He said women should not have that choice. Well, who is Obama to decide uh, whether, as a wife, you are going to take care of your own children or hire some uh, uh, daycare worker to take care of the child so you can go in the workhorse and let him say he, the gross national product has improved? Well, and of course, where, where are the feminists railing against this uh, reduction of choice on the part of, of women? Uh, because I, I, I've always argued that the majority of feminism comes out of the purely Marxist tradition. And of course, Obama was mentored by the Marxist tradition. One of his great intellectual um, uh, influences was an out-and-out -out Marxist. And so the idea that uh, they would have this view that the family stands between the state as it's currently constituted, and its goal of expansion 
uh, that's the biggest block to state power is a healthy and conducive family. And it's fine to say, well, it's going to increase our economic GDP to have women in the workforce. But much like the national debt, that just pushes the dysfunction down a generation. And it's the next generation that has to deal with the criminality and drug abuse and promiscuity and licentiousness of the kids who are raised within, without, with, without at least one parent there on a consistent basis. Sorry, it's a minor rant, but uh, this, this Marxist uh, yeah, well, attack rant on family is absolutely is really true. And uh, you're, you're telling telling some true things there, and and uh, the uh, of course uh, Obama was influenced by Alinsky, who was Marxist trained, and and uh, Betty Friedan, who started the feminist movement in this country, also had Marxist training when she was younger, and uh, they want to get rid of the family. They want those people want to get rid of anything that stands between the individual and the government because they want the government to run everything. And uh, that isn't the country, a kind of country we want to. And I want to point out that, uh, you know, the libertarians are uh, an element of our society that is working hard to get the government out of this and that. And they say they even want to get the, the government out of marriage. But I will point out, they don't talk about getting the government out of family courts and out of divorce. And it's the divorce and the breakup of marriage that is bringing government in whole hog into families uh, so that the government or some judge is deciding how they spend their money, where the kid goes to school, where the kid goes to church, uh, what, uh, wh- where, they, where they get to live, whether, who gets the house, and all that sort of thing. And, and I am waiting for the libertarians to get the government out of all of those what should be parental decisions and, and not uh, trying to get the government out of it because the, uh, the, the government is in it all the time and, and uh, we don't want the government running our families. Well, I, as speaking as someone who's tried to get the libertarians to focus more on family matter for, with some success for, for many years, uh, it is a frustration the degree to which people who focus solely on ideology um, don't understand that you cannot reduce the size and power of the state without strengthening the family, that there's simply no way to do it because people respond to incentives. Telling the government to reduce its power without dealing with the breakup and breakdown of the family is like telling somebody who's won the lottery to not cash it in because it's going to add to inflation because the government's just going to print the money. They'll be like, no, I've got my winning lottery ticket and away that I go. So focusing on the family to me is foundational to this great mission of attempting to roll back the state expansion that has occurred over the past century or That's right. We've got to rebuild a family in order to have a bulwark against uh, total government control. And that's the only way to do it. Because uh, in in the world, in the country that I grew up in during the Great Depression, uh, the the family, uh, our government survived because the family is is a really an independent unit. It, it, it's designed and equipped and motivated to support itself, not to look to some kind of a handout somewhere. And the children who come out of intact and healthy families are functional to the point where they don't need a big state because they're not out making big disasters and committing crimes and getting addicted and knocking people up. They're out there being responsible, mature adult citizens with the capacity to negotiate that you only get from a family and you can't get from a, a daycare or, or other sort of pseudo-family institutions, the kids that come out of healthy, intact, and peaceful families are so functional that the state becomes like, well, why would I need that? It's like 
it's like buying insurance uh, in a, a for it's like buying insurance for possession by a devil you don't even believe in in some other religion you don't need it if you come out of a healthy functioning family unit the need for the state evaporates to a large degree as well yes yeah, so those are some very important points and i do cover a lot of those in my book who killed the american family I hope your listeners will get it because, honestly, I just don't think there's any other book that talks about that. Uh, talks about the, the, the people who are to blame for killing the American family. Because the American family, uh, is the, is the kind of country, is the kind of, um, economic structure that enabled us to become a great nation and we need to restore it because that's where uh, we're going to achieve uh, less government. And these people who talk about having less spending, less government, it's not going to work unless we have more family. Well, I really appreciate that. We'll put links to the book below. I hope that everyone, uh, no matter what your political stripes, political ideology, will will read the book and examine the arguments. Uh, the, the the references are copious. The the data is there, and I think that the your arguments, Mr. Schlafly, are very compelling and. I hope that we are always intellectually mature enough to follow the data wherever uh, it leads. So I really appreciate your time in writing it. Thank you so much for your time today, and I hope we can get this information into the hands of uh, a few more people. Always good to talk to you. Have a good day. Take care.